This is Horam with Horam's Quorum. My guest today is Amandeep Sidhu, who is a partner of Winston and Strawn and the co-founder of the Sikh Coalition, which was formed in response to the events of 9-11 and the impact it had on the Sikh community and uh, other communities as well. And I'm really interested in Amandeep's story because uh, it was born out of reaction to some challenging circumstances. And it's fascinating to see how he and the organization responded to that in, in a thoughtful way and the very collaborative approach they've taken in building consensus and uh, just being very thoughtful about the portfolio of activities they've undertook and, and how this affected him professionally. So I think this is an incredible story for anyone who's looking to make changes and build consensus along the way. So I hope you'll enjoy this as much as I did. Well, hey, Amandeep, great to see you again. Great to talk to you again. Great to see you as well. Uh, so, you know, we, uh, in our last conversation, your story uh, was really powerful. And I normally uh, try not to uh, just kind of repeat narratives or or just kind of rehash stories that people have told before, but yours is too good to not just let you take the floor uh, because I'm really fascinated with the origin of the Sikh Coalition. And uh, I was wondering if you could just tell me about the story about how that organization came to be. Absolutely, my pleasure. And uh, and thank you for the opportunity. So we're coming up on the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the attacks on our country that really transformed uh, our lives in so many ways. Uh, and at that time, I was a couple of months out of college. I had just graduated in 2000. Um, so I was about a year out and was working as a consultant in Washington, D.C. and, you know, had grown up, uh, born and raised in Virginia, grew up outside of Richmond, the former capital of the Confederacy. My parents were one of the first Sikh families to settle in central Virginia. So just by by circumstances of being a very visible minority as a turban-wearing Sikh and my father being the same, I, I grew up being in community centers and churches and other uh, venues around central Virginia, helping to educate uh, those communities about the Sikh faith and really out of self-preservation and a desire to integrate into our community. That was sort of how I, I grew up. And uh, that continued a bit through high school and college, but on a very localized level. And when 9-11 happened, uh, I was working in Old Town Alexandria. I lived in Arlington on the other side of town, drove past the Pentagon that morning on the way to work and was listening to the radio and hearing about the uh, attacks in New York and uh, the first plane hitting one of the Twin Towers. By the time I got to my office and came upstairs, the second plane had hit the second tower. And before we even saw on the news what had happened at the Pentagon, we actually could see the smoke rising from the Pentagon in the distance. And so in those moments, it was just this overwhelming feeling. And even now, as I tell the story, uh, a chill goes up my spine because it was such a, an attack on uh, our country, an attack on, on us as Americans, that uh, thousands of people's lives had been lost tens of thousands of lives were transformed and that nothing was going to be the same after that that happened. And so we, we sat and we watched on TV 
as the the two towers burned and then fell. And we watched what happened at the Pentagon and then in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And as it unfolded, uh, cell phone service was down, regular telephone service was down. The only thing that actually allowed us to communicate with email. And so I hopped onto my computer and I sent my family an email to let them know that I was safe in DC. They knew that I, I worked with a DOD contractor and that I had been in the Pentagon for meetings in the past. And so I let them know I was okay. I contacted my friends in, in New York uh, and most of my, my close friends were all safe and far away from, from the financial district. Um, but then I started to get emails on Yahoo group listservs and other ways we were communicating back then before social media and Twitter and, and Facebook. Uh, and we were hearing about the backlash starting to unfold. Um, an elderly gentleman in New York attacked with a spiked baseball bat as he walked back from a Gurdwara, uh, a sick place of worship, after going to pray for the victims of the attacks. Um, individuals being fired on the spot because they wore turbans and beards, uh, people being uh, profiled by law enforcement, um, and then, you know, just things sort of spiraled. We started just seeing more and more of these types of, of emails blasting out that the Sikh community, the Muslim community, the broader, um, you know, AAPI community, the Brown community was, was going to be under attack in the aftermath of what happened on, on 9-11. As I drove home that day, um, I quite literally drove past the Pentagon um, on one of the roads that was not blocked off. And I was driven off the side of the road by a guy in a pickup truck waving his arms and yelling racial epithets. And thankfully, I safely pulled over and he kept going. And I got home and I just I this overwhelming sense of emotion flooded over me that that nothing was going to be the same. But it was you know, also a feeling that something had to be done. And so later that night and into the morning of September 12th, we finally had phone service and we were able to call one another and, and actually start to organize. And the, the group of young uh, Sikh Americans, those who had you know, been born here or grown up here, who understood the political climate, that understood how media worked, we all were a pretty small group. And we came together and we looked at one another and we said, we, we need to do something and we need to do it now because people are getting hurt and someone's going to be killed. Um, and sadly, as we organized in those first few days, by the, the weekend after 9-11, Obir Singh Sodhi was shot and killed at his gas station in Mesa, Arizona, by a self-proclaimed patriot who came in and shot and killed him. And so the Sikh coalition was quite literally born on 9-11. We didn't have uh, an NAACP in the Sikh community or an ADL. Um, we had some broader AAPI advocacy organizations. Uh, South Asian Americans leading together was also very new, um, but there really wasn't a dedicated civil rights organization for the issues and, and uh, challenges the Sikh community was gonna face. So we brought together as a coalition all of these loose and formal groups of folks in the Northeast, in the, the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, in the DC metro area, folks in Chicago, out in the Bay Area, in the North Pacific Northwest. And we came together with a core group of about a dozen volunteers, some of whom were lawyers, 
some were law students, some were like me, planning to go to law school, some were in business, some were in media. And we tried to bring all of these skills that we had as a group together to create this organization called the Sick Coalition. And so that's that's where we, we started. Yeah, I think that's um, an incredible story. Uh, and so it's just, it's interesting that, you know, it's something that, like you're saying, there's there's roots of it that in, that were obviously antecedent to 9-11. And, and there's a reason why you're able to find these different people so quickly is that, of course, there was ties there. And it's interesting that this was this crystallizing event. And I wonder if that's kind of distorting for you, because obviously, like, the, the whole point is that there's not a connection between the sixth community and 9-11. So it's just like, it's got to be kind of strange to have like this important thing in your life as a product of some external thing that has nothing to do with six. No, I think that's a very fair point. Um, you know, with the turban and beard, I, I've always been a very visible, visible religious minority. And you know, we talk about in like the diversity, equity and inclusion circles, the idea of covering, the idea of like your inauthentic versus your authentic self in the workplace, right? The reality is that it, as a, a sick with a turban on my head, like it's all out there, right? <laughs> no matter where I am, what, you know, workplace I'm in, what social event or social venue I'm in, I'm very visible as are all members of the sick faith. Um, and the association between the turban and terrorism predated 9-11. And I remember as a kid growing up, like the comments about my dad being a genie or being a magician or being a wizard, right? It was, it was frustrating and annoying as a kid, but it also was so lighthearted in comparison to uh, the association with terrorism. And it really was the first Gulf War um, in the you know, early, uh, late 80s, early 90s that it, it really kind of crystallized when, you know, sadly, uh, Osama bin Laden gained prominence and he very visibly wears a turban and members of, of that movement uh, visibly wear turbans. And so that association between terrorism and turban was sort of, you know, born in that time period from the Ayatollah Khomeini to that first Gulf War. And it really it really went from there. And like, that was the first time that I started to hear the Osama racial epithets and the towelhead racial epithets and, you know, crossing the parking lot with my dad in, uh, in Richmond for my cousin's birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese and having a car pull up in front of us and have, you know, a couple of kids pop their head out and yell, go back to your country uh, and take that thing off your head. Right. So that's, you know, it, it predated 9-11. And so we as a community were organized loosely in a way to respond to that. There was an organization dedicated to tracking media depictions of members of the Sikh faith. So what was happening in, in mass media, what was happening in the news, were Sikhs being accurately depicted in, in those media portrayals. Um, but that wasn't the civil rights legal um, response that the community really needed desperately after 9-11. So there were a lot of like-minded individuals who had, in, in our own ways, done this kind of work in our local communities. And we were thankfully, you know, we had some folks who had done it on a bigger scale, right? Amardeep Singh, who was the, the first full-time employee, first legal director, first executive director of the coalition, was in that co-founder group 
at the time of 9-11, he was doing his LLM in international human rights. And he'd often tell the story of how he, as he studied for his LLM, he never expected that the work he would be doing afterwards would be the Sikh community in the United States. He thought Sikh community maybe in Punjab, back in India, other communities around the world, but then dedicated the next decade of his life to working with the Sikh coalition to build it up. And so we had resources like that, where these were people who were educated and trained um, to do this kind of work. And, you know, then folks like me who went back to law school and came out, you know, I came out in 2005, so four years after 9-11, able to jump in, you know, then as a very new lawyer and support the effort. And so what, give me a breakdown of what your organization um, aims to do and accomplish in the first three to six months of its, of its existence. So this is not unique to the, um, to the Sikh community. I think it's endemic of the entire South Asian community and perhaps even the broader AIPI community. We felt really bad about asking the community for money until we had proven ourselves. And so very deliberately, we did not want to go to the community and say, help us fund this organization without having actually proven ourselves as being effective at doing something to help the community. That was number one. Number two was we had seen the weakness of organizations built around a single personality and personality, individual driven organization where it was Karam's organization or Amman's organization or, uh, you know, Safrit's organization, whatever that might look like, that wasn't going to work. And so we wanted it to be flat. And we went out and we set up meetings with DOJ and with the Department of Transportation before the TSA even existed and members of Congress. And we sort of had a checklist of things we needed to do. And it was putting, you know, the issues of hate crimes on the radar of the Bush administration and uh, local state governments where the community, larger state communities existed and the law enforcement uh, associated with those, those efforts. It was going to Congress and getting recognition of what, uh, what the sick community was facing. So we pushed for a resolution uh, to be uh, passed by both the House and, and Senate that for the first time in U.S. history actually enumerated what it means to be a Sikh, what that identity looks like, what the backlash looked like um, in terms of hate crimes and employment discrimination and airport profiling, um, but also very deliberately sent a message that we weren't going to isolate ourselves as being Sikh and that it was okay to go after these other communities. The message was never, we're not Muslim. It was always, we are sick, and these types of you know crimes against any community, whether it's sick or Muslim or Arab or, or any other community is wrong, and we need to help you understand who we are. And so we had a couple of those touch points where we had you know real recognition from the Bush administration of what was happening in the sick community, uh, meaningful changes around airport profiling policy on what would happen when a sick went through security. There were incidents where without even setting off an alarm, a Sikh was asked to remove his turban, um, which we felt was can amount to a strip search and completely unacceptable. And so we helped to shape policy and procedures that, that recognized security concerns, but also respected 
the sick uh, articles of faith. Um, and we got that resolution passed in the House and Senate that you know really did crystallize again the the, the unique circumstances of that mistaken identity and backlash that was facing the sick community. And we focused on getting well-trained and articulate resources uh, available for media appearances and on the news so that when issues happened, um, we had uh, sick voices to speak uh, to those issues and then created the legal resource structure to help the community respond. And so it was very much still a volunteer organization out of our trunks, out of our apartments, you know, out of our after hours conference rooms of the companies we worked at that we reorganized in that first year. But we felt like we had enough that we went to the community and we held an event in Washington in the spring of 2002, where we honored and uh, recognized all of those uh, elected officials and other organizations from the, the broader South Asian community, AAPI community that supported the sick community and helped us. And that was sort of our coming out as an organization and our first real significant fundraising effort. Um, December between uh, finishing my consulting gig and starting law school, I wrote, helped write the first grant application for the coalition and we got an, an, uh, you know, a decent sized grant that allowed us to open our doors and in a very small one room office in Chinatown in New York and eventually hire Ummer as the first full-time employee. And now it's grown to four cities and 24 full-time staff and, uh, and you know, the, the national organization that it is now. Is there anything about the efficacy of the organization? Let's say one year in, how, how do the efficacy of the organization in terms of output per employer, some other metric like that, compared to the organization today? I mean, was there any advantages to being smaller back then compared to today? There certainly weren't advantages, right? There's strength in numbers, there's strength in spreading resources around. And so if you look at the coalition as it exists today, you know, it spans across, um, you know, a number of buckets around legal resources, around community outreach and community building, capacity building, it's education, um, it's media, it is, you know, the um, advocacy beyond the legal advocacy, the other forms of advocacy that are out there. That was all happening, you know, basically with the one full-time person and then a bunch of other volunteers. And so slowly over time, things that were happening in a voluntary capacity have shifted to full-time staff who were able to dedicate 100% of their time to doing that work. So when I graduated from law school in 2005, I went into a clerkship. And so that actually forced me to have to go on pause for the first time um, after 9-11. I couldn't really publicly um, be out and about on behalf of the coalition during my clerkship. But then when I joined my first law firm, uh, McDermott, Will & Emery, I brought on this coalition as a, a pro bono client of the firm. Very you know, unique at the time. Not a lot of law firms were doing work in the religious rights space back then. Um, they weren't touching anything related to the Muslim community with a 10-foot pole. And so by extension, the issue of this, you know, sick community and the issues we were facing was really in that same bucket. Um, and we made the case that 
this was an issue that was affecting kids with school bullying. And that was aligned with the firm's Child First Pro Bono Initiative and that this made sense. And so I brought in the coalition. A lot of the stuff that I would have done on my own, just as a volunteer, attending those meetings with DOJ, attending the meetings with TSA, going up on the hill, I was able to do for a pro bono client and you know build those pro bono hours and bring other people into the fold and be part of that effort. And so what it ended up being is that, you know, while it was no, by no means full-time, uh, it was one more resource that the, that the organization had through a pro bono lawyer. And we tried to replicate that in a number of ways where some of the, the biggest cases that the SIC Coalition took on early on required the support of outside pro bono legal resources. So taking on the NYPD, and its discriminatory policies against turban wearing six. That was Ravi Bala, who's now the, the mayor of Hoboken. Um, his private law firm uh, coordinating and collaborating with the coalition on a pro bono basis to take on that case. And so that was one of the ways we grew is sort of, you know, what's happening on a kind of pro bono, low bono basis where Somebody has a you know media consulting firm and they want to support the effort. They have a web you know web design firm and they want to support the coalition. They have a law firm that wants to support on a pro bono basis. How do we make that happen? And so that will that's what happened for years and years and years. And over time, it's finally at a place where you know there are director level staff who are running those programs now for the coalition. And they have staff underneath them supporting their efforts, all of which was happening on a voluntary basis for you know the better part of, of the first 15 years of the organization. Yeah, I think that's really, I, I want to explore more because it seems like you're really skilled at persuading lots of kinds of organizations and stakeholders. So I, I want to explore that some more. Maybe as a side, you know, uh, this on the subject of law firms and their pro bono efforts, um, what are some of the opportunities or gaps, however you want to frame that, um, from, let's say, large law firms and you see how they approach pro bono? Like, what are some of the ways you think they can be uh, longer term oriented or or thinking about, um, yeah, thinking about upside in ways that, you know, um, they're not currently? So, I mean, because I think you've had a perspective on this for a large chunk of time for the benefits to an organization for investing in pro bono. Um, and maybe we can even start there. Maybe you can just say, Hey, here's the benefits. Maybe you can speak to say McDermott. What were the benefits of McDermott experience from the amount of resources that dedicated to the sick coalition? And then what can other law firms uh, learn from how to direct their resources to advocacy groups they're not thinking about now? Absolutely. And I think it's a very, it's a very timely question because I think a lot of law firms, particularly after the, the death of, of George Floyd and the focus on the BLM movement and a recognition by law firms of that, uh, the need to focus dedicated resources and attention uh, on social justice, racial justice issues. It's, it's, I think we're at an inflection point where firms that wouldn't have touched these issues 10 years ago or even five years ago are looking very closely at how they can be more impactful, including Winston and Strawn, you know, where I am now. Um, it is a very, you know, very much a part of the, the conversation. Uh, when I started this effort, it was very much the blind 
leading the blind and I was the blind and the follower. I mean, it was, there were, there was nobody before me, right? So I think back to my decision to go down the path of law school was driven in many ways by my first kind of mentor in the legal field, uh, Gerbier Graywall, who's the out, outgoing uh, attorney general of New Jersey, um, incoming um, head of enforcement um, litigation for the SEC. He was in law school when I was an undergrad at William & Mary. And that was my first real exposure to what being a law student would look like and what eventually being a lawyer would look like. And he came to a big firm in DC. He was the first person I knew who had been in that environment. And so when I started to think about what my next chapter was going to look like, like law firm was never on the radar. I, I thought it was government service in some capacity. It was some larger nonprofit to then maybe parlay that skill set back to the coalition. If there was a scenario where I could go directly work for the coalition, like that was, you know, percolating as as a possibility. Um, I remember sitting down with the members of the board and they handed me a, a stack of grant applications and the Scadden Fellowship. And they were like, you're, you're coming, you're coming to work for the coalition. And I, I just had this like itch in the back of my head that maybe there's something different. And it was born out of I think I need to be a better lawyer, right? Like I, I'm not going to be the best lawyer I can be if I jump right into this brand new organization we just created with one lawyer on staff. Like I could be a better lawyer if I at least spent a few years becoming and training and becoming a better lawyer. So when I went to the when I went to McDermott first, the pitch was like, this is what I want to do anyway, right? Like this is something I'm passionate about. It's it's you know time I'd like to spend whether it's five percent whether it's seven percent whatever that bucket looks like I think it was like a hundred billable hours back then out of my two thousand maybe it jumped up to two hundred at some point but it was it was what I wanted to do and so to be able to do that for for my own community with an organization that was was doing it very professionally that was awesome but what it turned into was this incredible opportunity for me to to grow as a lawyer and raise my own profile both in the firm and outside but also raise the firm's profile so going to your your questions in 2009 the coalition came to me and said we're about to take on the US military we're going to you know take on two clients who've been told that they have to shave and take off their turban continue their service in the US army and we're gonna take on their cases and we likely will have to litigate. Will your firm partner with us on what could be a multi-year effort? And I went to the, the firm's leadership and we made the pitch. We said, this is not gonna be a, a quick one and done situation. It's gonna take years. And the firm to its credit said, absolutely. We, we support that effort and we want you to do it. And so as a fourth year associate, I put together a team of four or five partners and six or seven associates. And it was the head of our government strategies practice, the head of the labor employment practice, a couple of other litigators, a bunch of associates. And we helped architect this campaign that is now in its 12th year as we have pushed for the end of religious discrimination in the U.S. military. And so I won't tell that whole story right now, but the long and short of it is by the time I left McDermott last year, the firm had committed somewhere in the vicinity of three or four million dollars, three and a half, almost four million dollars of pro bono services to the sick coalition. 
I translated that all over to Winston with the same commitment from the firm to continue that work. And the work continues at Winston and Strawn with the same level level of, of vigor and commitment to provide resources and bring in other attorneys as we need. And so when you think about like force multipliers, like that's, it's an organization that back in 2009 had a half a million dollar budget. We were adding $200,000 to that, that number. And by the time I left, you know, two, two years ago, one, you know, $2 million budget and we were adding half a million dollars every year to that, that bottom line. And that, that makes a big difference. It makes a huge difference in what the uh, organization can accomplish. Um, it adds a lot of credibility, right? It's not just this little little organization, this a coalition. It's an international law firm behind the, the effort. Um, it you know allowed for me to get more people involved at the firm, and it brought a lot of very positive press. So those were the types of cases that were getting New York Times stories and Washington Post stories and CBS Evening News uh, video you know clips, and so. To be able to demonstrate to the firm, this is not just Ummin's pet project, but it is something that is actually raising the firm's profile. Uh, that makes a big difference. And so, what did so what did McDermott convey to you? I mean, so they they said to you, "Hey, we value the profile we're getting from this." Like, what did they convey to you about the benefit they perceived in supporting the SIC coalition? So it was twofold, right? So I was an associate when this all started. And thankfully, uh, I got some good advice very early on. My wife is also a lawyer. She had been in big law before she shifted into the nonprofit world many, many years ago. And she's at, at Amnesty International now. But her time in big law taught her one thing. And that was like, bill your hours, <laughs> do good work, right? get good reviews, like don't fall short of the expectations that you have for working at a business. And that, that advice was, was uh, reinforced by some of my early mentors at, at McDermott. And so I always hit my hours. I always you know, did really great work. And I, I've also carved out you know, my niche. And I, my, my day job is healthcare life sciences. And I do litigation, investigations, and compliance and regulatory in that space. And I, I love what I do. And so I was able to build my practice while also in parallel building this, this work around the coalition. And what that demonstrated to the firm is that this was, you know, this was not a distraction from Amman contributing to the firm, you know, when, when it comes to the, the bottom line. But more than that, the media coverage, the awards, right? We, we got the National Law Journal Pro Bono Award one year and uh, other organizations gave us, you know, recognition over the years. Uh, that stuff all matters, right? Like that stuff that that goes into the calculus of, you know, what the firm is able to say about its commitment when it comes to hiring summer associates and lateral recruits and everything else under the sun. So it was, you know, law firms political, and I thankfully figured that out early on enough that I knew how I needed to do it. And, and it couldn't just be selfishly driven by what I wanted to do or what I thought the organization, the coalition needed. It was, it was taking that all into account while also recognizing that I, I was a, you know, associate and then ultimately a partner at uh, 
a profit-driven organization that wants to do the right thing and help our communities and and contribute, but also is is there to make money. And so this was a way to spotlight the firm in a unique way that was very much appreciated. So I was promoted to partner, uh, you know, right on time. And this was a big part of my visibility was that I had you know, gone to the partner retreat as an associate with one of my clients from the Sick Coalition as one of their keynote speakers to talk about this pro bono work. And so when I was up for partner the next year, people knew who I was. And it wasn't, you know, just this, this guy in DC. It was the guy who had been in the New York Times story, who was at the partner retreat, who was doing all this great work. And, you know, oh, by the way, is like killing it on hours and getting good reviews and people like working with them. And I think this is somebody we want to, to have in the partnership. And so what are some, I guess, if, if an organization approached you, so there's um, someone who's like really involved in organizations similar to, to your circumstances, and they say to you, Aman, I want to learn how to um, get more people involved with this pro bono project. I want to get my law firm buy in the way that, you know, the firms you've worked by, I have bought into the coalition. Is there just like a high level bullet point or work, you know, just like at a really high level, what's the framework you would tell someone for how to think about them, how to approach that? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, most law, large law firms, even some of the medium and smaller firms will have uh, someone who's dedicated to the pro bono program, whether it's a dedicated pro bono director or a partner who wears that dual hat. Um, so I would approach him or her and uh, talk about the organization um, understanding kind of where the focus has been, like what, what does the firm do right now? Where, where is the focus of the pro bono efforts right now? Um, and what kinds of organizations are serving as referral sources? What kinds of cases have we worked on? Is it just sort of the traditional landlord tenant and, you know, uh, other, you know, forms of guardian ad litem? Is it sort of like that bucket or is the organization, is the firm doing work in the, impact social justice space already? Like, is there already a hook for what you're trying to do? Or is it just a complete outlier? But then you have that conversation with whoever is in charge of pro bono. And you just explain, look, this is the organization that I'm really passionate about. This is what they do. Um, I think these are the types of cases we could be working on. You know, start small. With the coalition, it was the single bullying case of a kid. It was the single advocacy effort around a policy change for TSA. It wasn't, you know, the knock it out of the park, 12-year multi, you know, multi-office and religious discrimination in the military case. It was, let's start small, let's grow, let's prove that this is an organization we we like working with as a as a law firm, and then go from there. And if you have a, a head of diversity, equity, inclusion, or someone who wears that hat, uh, approach her or him and you know talk about uh, what this means in terms of impact. If there's that that DEI hook, right? So at the end of the day, like part of the hook for the coalition work is this is sort of teaching diversity through osmosis, right? I don't have to go and explain the Sikh faith to you know the the. 2,500 lawyers at the law firm and all of the staff, we can circulate the New York Times story. We can circulate the, you know, the news clip from the, the evening news the day before as part of the routine, you know, 
circulation of information about what's happening in the firm and people, you know, their eyes are open. They say, okay, like I, I see that guy Evan, I've seen him in the office or I've seen him on the website. Now I know a little bit about his community and I'm, you know, both educated and maybe I'm interested in helping in some way. And I think that's, you know, what I've experienced even in the last year and a half at, at Winston is that we've taken some of these inflection points around George Floyd and BLM, around uh, the Atlanta shootings and the attacks on the AAPI community and the, the environment of COVID and use those as opportunities to share our experiences with our peers. And we can do that a lot more efficiently when we're doing things using technology. But I think that's you know just the, the level of, of opening eyes to uh, the unique experiences and perspectives that we bring to that organization, it, it makes us stronger. And so I think there are all of these different angles you can pitch, but I would say you start with the, whoever runs pro bono, whoever runs diversity, equity, inclusion, like those are your two allies and they will be your best resource on helping to frame that organization and potentially that first project that allows you to bring in the organization. Yeah, I love your comment on the incidental benefits on DEI because, yeah, I think you know so many things about DEI try to approach the subject head on. And even to receptive ears, there's just only so much information you can process or, you know, that you have, you know, just capacity to process. Um, and I like your point about just this being a another form or, I don't know, you don't want to call it an end run, but it's just like, it's just another vehicle for you know, conveying these thoughts and, and, and principles to some to people to say, okay, this is what it means to have a sick colleague, and this is what it means to uh, understand what it'd be like to be a, 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 to to make a law firm that is welcoming to six and or a society that's welcoming to six, and then of course not just six, but then other groups too. Uh, just being more thoughtful about what 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 inclusion actually looks like for the person down the hall who's you know doing good things for your firm. I really like that a lot. Um, yeah, I think about say with with Pony Cooler, I think it's the same premise there. It's just you know, um, you know, data organization is not de- designed to um, directly influence law firms, but through connecting South Asian lawyers with each other uh, and creating more opportunities for South Asian lawyers, I think that is um, the path that I'm seeing there. Um, so it's interesting that you were able to successfully. Um, but I mean, I think you need both. I think you need, you know, self-organizing entities, uh, kind of like you know, where you're talking about the Sick Coalition. It's early days of, you know, relying on, say, there's somebody who wanted to dedicate pro bono, you know, uh, SEO services or something like that, or website design, um, to getting stakeholders outside of your community. I think that's an important transition. Um, so with law firms in general, I mean, do you have a point of view on what are the opportunities that law firms, to extent that law firms think in these terms for taking on pro bono work? I mean, ultimately, I think it's going to come from people like an individual, like you're saying, like somebody who is, you know, a um, passion for a subject and, and, and that's what's driving them to this. But I don't know if you have a point of view on in this era today, uh, what are some of the big opportunities for that firms could be taking on or what are some new frontiers in, in pro bono work that you see? Certainly, I, I think having someone that has a personal connection and passion, uh, it, it just makes the work that much more um, 
I think, meaningful and uh, valuable for the organization, right? I, we're at this place where there's been a huge focus on finding civil rights organizations in the uh, in black and brown communities to support, right? There are a lot of firms that have never touched this and all of a sudden want to jump right in. And that's fine. And right. And these are organizations generally that are not going to shun away the resources of a you know billion dollar law firm, but it makes it a lot more um, personal if there's a connection, right? A connection between people who are working on it, leading the effort that have connection to the organization. Um, because I think that builds loyalty between that person at the, at the firm and the firm or committing resources to something that he or she is, is passionate about. And so that I think is the, the most natural way to see that kind of work grow. Um, you know, for the larger organizations that truly have, um, you know, referral uh, networks, right? Like you, you know, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, where if you're a big firm in DC or anywhere around the country, you can be on their listserv and you're going to get the distribution every week of the three or four or five or 10 cases they've got in the door. And the first one that grabs it gets it. And, you know, you, you may be able to keep it if you've got the right team, or maybe you punt if you don't think you have the right people, but you, you do it that way. And like, not every organization is there. The coalition is not there, right? It's every few weeks, or maybe it's once a month that there's something new where they're going out and bringing in pro bono resources from, from the field to support the effort. Um, but I'd say, you know, thinking about as an organization, as a firm, where your passions are going to lie um, should be driven by the people. So I'll take Winston as an example. After uh, the death of George Floyd, and in that aftermath, we created a racial justice equity task force. Um, so separate from our diversity and inclusion committee, which I serve on, we created this separate task force focused very specifically, not just on what the firm could do organizationally outside of the firm to support the black community. And that was financial commitment to you know, support certain organizations. It was also, how do we increase the amount of pro bono work we're doing with organizations in, in the black community and in the civil rights community? And also, what are we doing internally to uh, to retain and promote Black associates and Black partners? And so it was a very specific, very deliberate, very focused on not just what do we do externally and visibly from a, you know, we want to look good as a law firm perspective, which you can kind of chalk it up to that, that a lot of firms said a lot of good things and threw a lot of money. But what can we really meaningfully do? not just in the near term, but in the long term. And then how do we introspectively look at what we need to be doing differently to actually change the organization, right? Like how do we ensure that we don't see that out migration of mid-level or senior black associates, that we don't see lateral movement when partners don't feel like they're getting leadership opportunities. Like what do we need to fix as an organization to actually change, like move the needle? And so I, I, I'd say, you know, firms need to take that kind of pause and careful look to say, okay, what are we doing that's like visibly nice versus actually going to make a difference for our organization and for the legal industry more broadly? What do you think is most promising or impressive thing that you think Winston is doing on the DI front? 
So I think there are a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, we have a mentorship program that pairs uh, partner track associates with members of the executive committee as, as dedicated sponsors for their uh, uh, ascension to partnership. So it is, you know, you are on track with your reviews and your experiences and you're hitting all of the right uh, notes to be promotable. Um, and Winston is a one, one tier partnership. So you're going straight to equity partner. And so you're, you're paired up with a member of, of the executive committee, someone who clearly has influence and the ability to help guide you to, to that final stretch um, of getting promoted. I, you know, coming in, I, I came in obviously as a, a partner when I lateraled over, but I was really impressed with that. And that's something that's been around for a couple of years. And uh, David Rogers, the head of the, the DC office talked about that when we first met with him. And we're considering Winston, and uh, that really impressed me. That that predated everything, right before 20, 2020. Um, what we've done in the aftermath of of twenty twenty is the the program I just described, where we're we're very deliberately looking at the differentials and experiences that Black and Brown associates have versus uh, non diverse associates, and how do we fix that gap, right? How do you uh, adjust for the scenario where everyone comes in on equal footing, the first year associate, but within six months, nine months, 12 months, 18 months, two years, white associates have more hours than Asian associates and, and Hispanic associates and black associates. And it's a trickle down. It's not happening because they don't have the education or the, the skills and the ability to, to, to succeed. It's happening because of unconscious bias. It's happening because if just that one assignment gets shoved over to the, the white associate versus a diverse associate, and that sort of creates this slow decline of experience, that that the diverse associate is at a deficit two years in. And three years in and four years in, it just sort of is a it's it it builds upon itself. And so we've put in place um, a, an assignment coordination and management system where everything is, is run through a process. And it's no longer a pure entrepreneurial, you know, eat what you can kill as an associate. It depends on who you're, you know, become in relationship with at the senior associate or partner level. It is a, you know, day-to-day, -day, -day, week-to-week, month-to-month monitoring to say, how are these experiences actually lining up? And is you know Bob getting more ex experiences than Sally? And how do we adjust for that to make sure that they are getting that equal opportunity? Now, obviously, there are always going to be associates at every level and you know of, of every background that aren't going to cut it and are going to get you know filtered out over time because this isn't the right the right fit for them. But it shouldn't be because they are not getting. The opportunities that their peers are getting at a, a greater pace. So I want to go back to um, the SIC coalition because I'm kind of uh, I'm curious about how the organization has changed over time. So what would you say is different about the mission today than the mission, let's say, ten years ago? So it's interesting because I that the mission really hasn't changed. It's the level of, of resources and the ability to actually uh, achieve some of those changes 
that that's really what has changed. It, the, the catchphrase that we associated with the name, the Sick Coalition, was the, the voice of the people, right? That we were uh, the voice of, of a people, of the Sick American community in all of these different environments and spheres. And, you know, there was only so much that the organization could do out of that one room in Chinatown with one full-time employee. And then it became two, and then it was three, and then it was five, and now it's, you know, grown to the 20-plus member staff that, that exists now. And so, like, I'll take education, for example, right? In education, that was an area where, you know, it was sort of a scattershot of, you know, one person or two people or three dealing with all of the other issues on the legal front and on the advocacy with hate crimes and profiling and employment discrimination. And then, you know, the underlying issues of sort of how do you change perceptions community by community, county by county, city by city, state by state, and then nationally. Like it can't just be top down, it also has to be bottom up. And so, you know, I think back to my upbringing in Richmond, Virginia, we didn't talk about the Sikh faith in in school, right? I, I didn't learn about the Sikh faith the same way I learned about Christianity, um, you know, Judaism, Islam, you know, it, it just wasn't in the book. It wasn't in the textbook. And so how do you fix that? And so interestingly, there are a handful of, of school districts around the country that actually dictate content for the textbooks because of their size. So you go down to Texas and they drive content for textbooks around the country. And so the coalition dedicated a full-time staff member to basically live in Texas for a couple of years, you know, a few years back, five, five years, six years ago now, it's been a while and was was on the ground you know every day lobbying the school board members down there about the importance of including accurate content on the sick faith right there's just as bad as no content is inaccurate content and sadly there's a lot of you know driving forces around uh subsuming sikhism as a sect or an offshoot of other faiths and not an independent faith of its own with this unique uh, background of, of, of beliefs and identity. And so that was also in play. And so that change, and then you add to that going state by state as curriculums are revised over the years, they have successfully lobbied for changes to textbooks and curriculum guidance for social studies. And I'm wildly getting this wrong, but call it 10 or 12 states. So it's several states in which that change has now happened. Several are underway. Virginia is one that's that's currently um, under reconsideration, where that is not part of the textbooks, and they're pushing really hard. That never could have happened without having the three full-time staff members that are in that education program at the coalition. You think about the legal efforts that are happening with four, I think five now, four full-time lawyers, one part-time lawyer. And so with that level of resources and the legal director, uh, Amrit Kaur, is a former Cook County prosecutor. She's someone who's literally you know, litigated some of the thorniest, craziest cases you can imagine to have that kind of talent heading the legal department of the coalition and having that uh, kind of leadership, the kinds of cases that they can take on the level of impact they can have in those cases, the cases they can get resolved on settlement because they have such a powerhouse to be able to just walk into the room 
and have the other guys just sort of fold over and say, okay, we're, we're going to lose. How do we, how do we get out of this? Um, that, that wouldn't have happened, right? We would have had to fight tooth and nail because it was quite literally the, the little guy in the room that the, the government did not have to, to worry about. And so I'm really proud of the reputation the coalition has built, which is one that even, you know, even as an organization that has grown substantially, it's still tiny in comparison to its peers, right? Compared to ADL, compared to NAACP, there, there's no comparison in terms of the size and resources of the organization. The coalition is very well respected in those circles as doing incredibly competent um, work and being tremendous advocates and you know getting getting shit done, right? I mean, that's at the end of the day, it's the proof is in the pudding on kind of what what have we accomplished as an organization. And the the list is very long on what's actually been done. What do you think is the most impressive accomplishment of the of the coalition? So <laughs> there's there's a lot. Um, I'm obviously a bit biased since I've been so involved. Uh, in the military religious accommodation campaign. Um, and it, it may not necessarily be the most significant uh, change um, because, you know, the education change like that, that's going to take decades to actually see the, the, the results of, of that effort. And you know, the generation that comes behind us, right, they're going to be the ones that benefit from a situation where they grow up with peers that actually learn why they wear a turban or why they have long hair. And you know, that that you can't measure at this point in time how much of an impact that's gonna have. But when I look at the, the military campaign, and I, I've been privileged to be part of that for you know the last 12 years, we pushed really hard to avoid litigation. Right? We we had two clients in 2009 were able to get them individual accommodations that allowed them to serve with turbans and beards uh, without having to shave and, and violate their religious practice. And we very strategically wanted them to prove the concept, right? That these guys could groom their beards in a way that would allow them to be neat and conservative. That's like the buzzword around uniformity in the military. They could wear a gas mask and conform safety gear to their face, which they could. That they would take off their full turban and wear a small under turban to wear a helmet for safety reasons, another big concern. They would wear a camo turban when they were out in the field deployed. They'd wear a black or, or navy blue turban when they were in their dress uniforms. So we went down this list of like, how do we prove the concept? And then in 2010, we were able to get an individual accommodation for the first enlisted sick in a generation. And these three guys basically were the test cases. And they were chosen as our clients because we knew that they passed the our rigorous scrutiny of being able to withstand discrimination and bigotry and, and all the things we expected they might experience. And they did really well, right? They deployed to Afghanistan, two of them deployed to Afghanistan. They came back with, with several awards. And then, you know, it, it was as if the army had said, this experiment was great, but we're not gonna expand it any further. So we, we got to 2014, we had a few more clients that faced kind of 
you know, what I'll describe as a sort of bullshit pushbacks. Like it, you know, it didn't end up being ones that we, we were going to litigate, but they still were pushed back in a way that was frustrating and indicative of, of a, a desire not to move the needle. And then in 2016, 2015, 2016, that was when it was really a turning point. We were approached by an individual named Captain Simrath Paul Singh, his nickname is Simmer. Um, this is the guy who went to West Point when he was uh, graduating from high school in 2007. So two years before we started this campaign. And he showed up at West Point with a turban and beard, had seen that there had been six who served throughout the 20th century uh, with turbans and beards and thought, okay, I'll be fine. And, you know, naively thought, okay, I'll be fine. Showed up at West Point and they said, shave your beard, cut your hair, take off your turban or go home. And so he reluctantly and with a very, you know, heavy heart decided to shave and cut his hair. And so he lost his identity, went to West Point, graduated, became an army ranger, uh, deployed um, several times, decorated, um, you know, true uh, soldier, uh, an officer in the U.S. Army. And he came to an event at the Pentagon and he was uh, attending this. It was for Vesaki, the sick holiday, the spring you know, harvest festival and celebration of, of the Khalsa. And so the Pentagon was actually hosting an event for sick service members celebrating this sick holiday. And all of our turban wearing sick clients were in attendance. And uh, Captain Singh, uh, he was uh, in his uniform, but you know, clean shaven with his hair cut. He came up to me. He kind of figured through the, the where I, I was placed in the, the room that I was one of the lawyers. And he said, how did they do that? Like, how, how are those guys wearing turbans? And so I gave him the, you know, the five minute version. I said, let's talk some more. And he became our client. And we helped him ultimately get his accommodation that allowed him to keep his hair and I a turban. We ended up having to litigate his case in 2016, um, along with the, the case of three others. It was a separate lawsuit, both of which we successfully resolved um, with, with the Army. Um, and then expected that the election might go one way in 2016, and it ended up going in a very different direction. And we were, were sort of at a crossroads where we had every expectation that we might be moving towards um, a, a global DOD-wide change. And that didn't, you know, we knew that that was not going to happen in the, the Trump administration. But Eric Fanning, who was the first openly gay secretary of the army, he was the Ar secretary of the army at the time, he essentially made the issue of religious accommodation in the army one of his final issues he wanted to hit before he left office. So between November of 2016 and January of 2017, he worked behind the scenes. We provided whatever resources we could and information. And in January of 2017, the army issued a new policy that effectively opened the doors to six. So the extraordinary resources we had to put into those seven accommodations that had come before 2016 or through the end of 2016, you know, millions of dollars of pro bono resources from, from outside law firms, the organization dedicating a huge chunk of its budget and time and resources to the, this effort. All of a sudden, the Army had a policy that opened the door 
that if you were an observant sick with a turban and beard, you could request an accommodation if your beliefs were sincere and you agreed to groom your beard and wear the right color turban with your uniform, that you were able to get that accommodation. Like the, the diagrams that we had been putting in front of the army for 10 years or you know nine, eight, nine years at that point, those ended up in the policy, right? The style of turban, the way that you know official insignia would be affixed to the front of the turban, the way the beard would be groomed. It was everything we had pushed for, we actually got in the army, right? And, and so now there are over 60 turban wearing sick, observant sick service members in the US Army. Uh, the Air Force followed suit in 2019 with its own policy that opened the door. And there are three or four observant six uh, with turbans and beards serving in the U.S. Air Force. In 2017, we got the first two uh, sick male cadets in U.S. history with turbans and beards at West Point. And they just graduated this last spring, um, this, this past spring. And we, we continue to fight, right? We're still, we're still fighting the Marines. We're still fighting the Navy. Um, but when I think about the, the lives that were changed, whether it's those individual clients or the, the many that I've, I've never met, and to know that, you know, the organization accomplished that and I was a little part of that is, is huge. And so that's, I would say that's, you know, that's, that's impactful. And I, I say it not just because of the military piece, but all of this along the way and, and part of the, you know, sort of the, the rationale for the coalition focusing so much of its time and effort on this is that this is an employment discrimination discrimination issue, that it's an employment discrimination issue because the U.S. military DOD is the largest employer in the world. And it is, dictates any employer globally that has a uniform policy that if they're going to exclude turban wearing six from serving, then we're going to exclude them from being security guards or, you know, law enforcement officers or whatever it might be, you know, even the, the back room, you know, or the front front office of, you know, the UPS store. I mean, you can go down the list of all these different employment discrimination cases where one of the early arguments is, well, if the military doesn't let you do it, why would we? And so this is a, a big issue because it, if we break down this barrier, it has the ability to break down all those other barriers. You know, one detail I really liked is that the policy manual for the armies, including the figures that you designed, I think that's another great piece of advocacy is that it seems like uh, you've tried to, in the in in this form of advocacy and in the internal advocacy you had at the law firms you've been at, you've made it easy for people to, to agree with you or side with you because you're making their lives easier to say, hey, I've already done this work here's here's what the turban will look like you know in cambo with the insignia and so forth so i think that's a really uh interesting bit of persuasion that it seems it's um a core theme in the work that you've done it is and I, I we can't take full credit for for actually doing these drawings we we lifted it out of the policy that exists in canada and the policy that exists in the uk and the policy that exists in india where, you know, in, in India, it's not really a policy, right? It's, you, you just, you just serve, right? It's, it's not, it's not a, you know, there's no boxes that need to be checked, but uh, Canada, the first, you know, sick defense minister, um, Harjit Singh Sajjan, you know, this was all happening in the background. 
that you've got, you know, quite literally the, the, you know, the Secretary of Defense equivalent just north of the border wears a turban and beard and serves alongside our American soldiers abroad in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And we're telling six in, in the U.S. that you can't wear a turban and beard. So the irony was there. But, you know, we the, the diagrams were taking what was already out there. Right, that this is our our allies who've been doing this for decades. We can do the exact same thing here, um, but we did put together model policy, model guidance. Like right? we we did our research. Right, this never required any legislative change. Congress actually made it clear back in the the late '80s, early '90s, that it intended for the military to accommodate uh, not just observant members of the Jewish faith, but also Sikhs and Muslims. And the, the latter two just never happened, right? The, the army and the other branches just never fully uh, adopted the, the guideposts that Congress tried to put in place in the late 80s. And so, you know, we knew that all this would take was uh, convincing of quite literally the people in the room making the decision that this was not just, you know, the right thing to do, but it could be done in a way that didn't compromise any of those very real concerns about safety and uniformity and esprit de corps and unit cohesion and all of these, you know, military, um, you know, rationales for for wanting to have um, some uniformity in, in the, the service. But that doesn't mean that everyone is exactly the same. And it doesn't mean you can't accommodate difference. Yeah, I like that a lot. And yeah, you know, and now I can. I really like how you spelled out the the broader impact on um, you know, who are the other entities that look to Department of Defense. Um, and so, yeah, you can you can just see you're just at the tip of this really huge pyramid. I think that's another theme is you know um, if you're thinking about any direction you want to go in, just finding the smallest ingress or egress, however you want to put that. Um, or a wedge issue and just kind of like grow from there. I like that theme as a, lot, a lot as well. Let me ask you this. Cause I think, you know, you talked earlier about um, the efficacy of the sick coalition, you know, and uh, compared to, or, or just in the context of some of his older and, and larger and better funded peers. So I'm curious for the South Asian bar, um, you know, what are the things that, the South Asian bar, South Asian lawyers uh, can learn from the Sikh coalition in terms of, of efficacy, impact, um, connectedness. You know, what are the principles you think are generally applicable to this, you know, adjacent community to the Sikh community? So uh, given the, the where we are 20 years out from 9-11, you know, you're, we, our, our parents' generation was one where there was, I think, a lot of um, siloing between religious communities coming from, from South Asia, and the Sikh community generally stayed in its silo, and the Hindu community in its silo, and the Muslim community in its silo, and yeah, you know, like, my parents had a lot of friends across all of those silos, but not everyone does, right? As a general rule, people kind of stayed in their bucket. And so a lot of those tensions that, that arose out of partition um, and everything that, that came in the decades after carried over to the U.S. 
and some of those you know prejudices and perceptions around the Sikh community, around the Muslim community, around the Hindu community, like that, that carried over. And um, what was really powerful about what happened after 9-11 is that all of those walls sort of fell apart, or, you know, generally, right? It, and there were certainly, you know, different different organizations and individuals that, that kind of prescribed to the, or prescribed to those prejudices, but as a general rule, that those differences fell, fell aside in our, in our generation. And so one of our biggest allies early on was, was SALT, South Asians Americans leading together. Uh, the buyer was the executive director at the time. And, you know, they were not that far ahead of the Sikh coalition, right? The, Deepa was voluntary. She was at DOJ at the time. Um, she ended up being their full, first full-time person when she left DOJ and they raised the money to, to open an office. Um, she helped us open a ton of doors, um, you know, members of the Muslim community um, and different organizations over time. They've been tremendous allies as we've navigated you know, these various issues. And so what I'd say is that, you know, the, the lesson to learn from the coalition really isn't a lesson from the coalition. It's just a reflection on what has actually already happened over the last 20 years, which is just a lot of openness to collaboration and support for these issues, right? As, as we've done this work in the military, our clients were all sick, but the mission was never accommodate only six, right? This, the policy that changed in 2017 uh, equally applied to observant Muslims and other religious minorities that had any form of religious headwear or facial hair. And so we always pushed for the greatest possible scenario where it wasn't just going to be the Sikh community that, that benefited, but the broader religious community, the broader um, South Asian community. And so I think that, you know, the coalition has done a really, really good job of navigating the waters that were, you know, quite frankly, muddied by our, our parents' generation. And, you know, my, my parents are in that generation, like right? they were leaders in their local communities and did, did great things and have done great things and continue to do great things. But, it, you know, generationally, not everyone plays nice in the sandbox and has expectations about, you know, what it means to have an impact, right? Is it is it just the photo op, right? Is it just getting that picture with President Bush or that picture with President Obama? Or is it actually getting the work done, right? And so the coalition is always focused on just getting the work done. And if, you know, the other stuff happens to, um, you know, as a, a side benefit, sure. Um, it's not about the glory. It's about actually changing, uh, changing people's lives. And so um, I think that, you know, that focus on the work, focus on actually making an impact rather than focusing on kind of who's in the news, who's getting the press, who's in the press release. Like, I mean, there are all these things that, it sadly still happen, but that's the, I've been very impressed with the coalition as it's grown from a founder, you know, founder run organization to where we are now. Um, it, it has been a very mature and level headed organization and the leadership, you know, continues to kind of follow that mantra today. So it strikes me, you know, going back to something you talked about earlier in the conversation that, you know, you know, now there's, you know, new forms of awareness about uh, diversity inclusion and 
you know, you're saying, you know, and there's concepts of, you know, to what degree you're showing up, you know, at work as your whole self or, or, or however you want to frame that. And, and you're saying, Hey, you know, like I, I haven't had a choice like this. I, I wear a turban, you know, this, this has always been part of my identity. It's very visible. And, you know, and then talking about the, uh, the strategy of, you know, this, the, the military litigation and the impact it has, it seems to me that you have probably a really unique perspective on, on what is to come. Like, I mean, I, I'm, there's been surprises on the way, of course, uh, of course you could have predicted, you know, the, you know, political changes or, you know, the, the, you know, the effect of, you know, work that you took on earlier and, and even thinking that it was going to have a certain impact to what actually had this other impact. But I'm curious about what is something that you believe that you feel like because of your unique vantage point, because the unique vantage point you have in society um, as a turban wearing sick or, 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 you know, all these other, these various related identities you have, what is something that you think you see that other people can't see yet, but how something's going to be different here in this country, this society in the next five years? A lot to unpack there, my friend. Um, that's a good, it's a good question. So when I went into big law, there were only a few people that I knew, I mean, very few people in the sick community that were in, in big law, um, very few guideposts on what that was going to look like, whether I would still be in this, you know, in this environment 16 years later. Um, but a couple of years into it, I knew it's something I really wanted to do because I felt like I needed to do it because I felt like I was on track to do it. Like I, I felt like it was in my, in my reach to make partner. And I knew that nobody had done that before. So when I made partner in 2013, I was the first turban wearing sick partner in U.S. history at an AMLA 100 firm. Like that, that had never happened before. And I helped mentor a guy who was considering lateraling and he moved over and made partner a couple of years after me. And then he uh, piggybacked and made equity partner a few years ago. Um, and his name is uh, Nick, Nick Puji. And you know, Nick, you know, then became the first equity partner at an AMLA 100 firm um, when he got promoted to equity. And when I made my move to Winston and Strawn, I became the first, the second, you know, equity partner, um, Turbomarine equity partner. Um, and so, you know, you've got Denton's and Winston basically on the map for having the two, the only two Turbomarine equity partners in, in, a, in, the, in the country right now. And that, you know, that's not the end. Right, like that—that that can't be the end. And so I think about all the people that I mentor now, and that Nick mentors, and that you know, folks that have come behind us that we've mentored now that they are mentoring. Um, we we are at this like incredible inflection point um, where our communities are gaining uh, influence and power and recognition at you know at a, a significant you know fast clip. Um, I mentioned Gerbier, you know, as my, one of my early mentors, you know, his elevation first as the Bergen County prosecutor was historic. And next as the attorney general of New Jersey was absolutely historic. And the impact that, that he had in that leadership role, you know, that's going to reverberate for generations. 
Um, and Rubby as the first, you know, sick mayor in the country as the mayor of Hoboken, that, that breaks the, that barrier for someone else to think they can do that. And so, you know, what's next is I think lots of people doing the same thing, right? Like leadership in law firms, leadership in government service, elected office, um, you know, you think about the wave of diverse uh, female candidates that won in 2017 and Elhan Omar, you know, leading the charge with the turban in Congress. You know, that's, that's a powerful, powerful moment uh, to see that, that happen and see what comes behind that. But I also think what has allowed me to accomplish where, what I have in my career has not just been, you know, it, it, it couldn't have happened just leaning on my own community, right? If I relied solely on the sick community or even the, the South Asian community, I'd have very few mentors or sponsors or peers along the way. So the people who have lifted me up have been black partners, white partners, and everything in between who've helped me, broader AAPI partners who helped me get to partner helped me when I was making this decision to move, I left with a group and it was no you know, uh, accident. I left with two black partners and myself. Um, and so you know, that is also part of this future is recognizing that we're all kind of in this together. And it's not, um, and it's not to the exclusion or the knocking of the, the non-diverse you know, folks in this world, it's you know, recognizing that we might all do this together. And that if we share our experiences and people's eyes are open to what we might be going through, there's just a little bit of glimmer to say, okay, like I'm gonna use my privilege to help lift up folks that, that you know, should be at the same level as me when it comes to leadership or it comes to opportunity. Um, and I will say, you know, it is, very gratifying to be at, at Winston at a time when that is front and center of leadership's priorities. It's not just how do we grow as a law firm for the next 150 years. It is how do we grow as a diverse law firm for the next 150 years? How do we ensure that diversity is not just sort of lip service? It's who's in leadership, who's running this firm in, you know, in five years and 10 years and 20 years and 30 years. And so I think that that shared allyship across communities of color and and then back to the majority is incredibly important. So um, someone reached out to me recently and and asked me uh, for comment on um, advice for people at big law firms. So I was at at two big law firms and so I, I said, yeah, I don't know how interesting the things I have to say is about life at a big law firm. I think so many things that diverse law lawyers run into, uh, so much of that is just things that are endemic to large law firms. And so much of what happens to large law firms is just a product of the economics, the billable hour. Uh, so there's a lot to change there head on. But so, you know, my my takeaway was, was you know, it's not necessarily the case that someone needs to... Um, change big law. You talked about some of the ways in which, you know, large law firms, Winston specifically, or um, is changing. And there are only so many stakeholders like yourself that are in position to make those changes. 
but there's plenty of other ways to create changes. And so, you know, something that you did to create change 20 years ago was be part of the launch of the SIT coalition. So, and that's something that, you know, you didn't need anybody's permission to do that um, or anyone else's at a law firm's buy-in to do that. And so the message I had um, at first was going to be, hey, you know, you don't have to make a large law firm conform to you. You can find your own path and that doesn't have to be a large law firm. And then, but another component that was, you know, at first, at first I was going to say, well, you know, I think it's really important to find your people, whoever those people are. And there's different forms of those people that can be around a subset of area that you find you're really passionate about. Um, it could be an affinity group that's kind of specific, like, um, you know, South Asian Bar Association, Bar Association or something broader. I was part of for four years on the associate board in Chicago of the Chicago committee, which is for diverse lawyers at large law firms, um, you know, to, focus on elevation of partnership. And um, so find your people was at, at first, I thought that was my message, but then I, then I reflected on it. So, well, actually, no, I think my message is to build your own community. So that's the point behind Pony Cooler. So I, I mentioned Pony Cooler before, and it's uh, right now it's just a newsletter, um, but I think there's so much more that it can be. Uh, and there's about 1300 members in it right now that are South Asian lawyers and Right now, a very simple core premise you talked about kind of, you know, we talked to this tip of the pyramid thing where you start with something um, and that's the wedge. And so right now uh, for Ponycore, my focus, you talked to some of the, the social impact you're generating. I think that's incredible. And so something with Ponycore, you know, there's an economic impact primarily just, you know, making sure people uh, are getting to good jobs and staying in those places and connecting with other South Asian, uh, South Asian lawyers to do that. So that's my pet project. And so that's something that I found uh, meaningful to me and um, generates a kind of impact that I want to see for this community that I care about. But I'm curious to hear from you. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that there's, we need more entrepreneurs like yourself that are doing these kinds of things. Um, and I think that's, uh, so that's the thing that I, I want to talk more about. And so I'm very interested in getting your take on um, for people that are um, lawyers, South Asian lawyers, that um, have this drive to entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, however you want to put it, um, and they want to succeed, um, and they're not sure how to think about it, where to start, uh, or they want some inspiration. You know, what are the things you would say to someone in that position? You know, how do you maybe you even guide people like that? But can you share here? What are, what are the things you would say to somebody who wants to create an impact, grow themselves, grow their community? Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good timing because I, I served as Winston's partner chair of our summer program this past you know, few months in D.C. And so I've been giving that very advice to summer associates who are contemplating the rest of their you know, their time and what it means to jump into a law firm at a law school. And you know, I say this as someone who didn't know, I just, you know, again, didn't think in law school I'd end up in big law, didn't think when I joined big law, I'd still be in big law, you know, decade and a half later, but now can't imagine anything else because I, I have been able to have such an, a rewarding experience, um, you know, now at, at two different law firms. And, you know, what I, this is advice that I have learned over time. So I say this knowing that I did not follow it early enough in my career. 
Um, three years after we I joined McDermott, my wife and I had twin daughters. So that can, you know, send life into a complete tailspin in terms of, of schedule and time and priorities. But as a general rule, what I've I've realized, you know, at this point in, in my career and in my life, the girls are 11 now, so they're far more self-sufficient than they were back then. It's sort of the 80-20 rule, right, in life. Like 80% is going to be work and responsibilities and family and all of those commitments. But if you don't take out the 20% for yourself in something, like what is it that you do that's sort of just for you? And you're not always going to get that 20%. You're probably going to get a lot less than that. But if you aim for 20 and get 10 or even get five, like doing stuff that's just for you really uh, allows you to stay healthy and in, you know, a good mental space to be able to tackle and manage that other 80%. And it doesn't mean that that 20% can't be with your partner or with your family, but it's got to be like just really thinking about like taking care of yourself. I think it's the same idea in a law firm. And this is the advice I've, I've given to many associates is that if you derive your professional happiness from the four corners of your 2000 billable hours and the client facing work that you're doing, even if you love it and love the work and love the subject matter and love the industry that you're focused on, that's not going to be rewarding. As rewarding is if you find a way to do that and also find your other passion. And so for some people it's teaching and doing, you know, being an adjunct professor at the local law school. Some people it's pro bono. Some people it's like being on the DEI circuit and speaking at conferences and, and focusing on that work. For some it's developing Pani Cooler and having this incredible community and platform that that's providing resources and, and opportunities to share across the South Asian community. If you don't have that other sort of piece that's tied to your professional life, um, you might get burned out. And so I think the way that I have not, I mean, not to say I haven't had moments of feeling burnt out, but the way I haven't completely lost it and the fact that I've stayed with it for as long as I have is for me, it's a little bit of each of those, right? Like I get invited to like teach a lecture every year or so like for by somebody. So I'll go and teach something and that's fine, but that's not like, that's not my my bucket. My bucket's pro bono. It's DEI. And, and I, I love to speak at conferences. I love to be focused on that. I love serving on the diversity and equity, uh, diversity and inclusion committee at, at Winston. But pro bono has been my way of giving back to my community, of leveraging the resources of my law firms, of feeling like I'm doing something really meaningful. And I think you got to find what that is. And if you, if you have that thing you're passionate about, whether it's in any of those buckets I just described or, or some other, you know, other area that I haven't even thought of, maybe it's art, maybe it's stand. I, I just interviewed a summer who was a, was a stand-up comedian before he came to law school. I was like, don't lose that, man. Like, keep doing that. You know, there's no reason you can't be a stand-up comic on the side and have that kind of fun because that's an outlet that will keep you grounded. And so I think they have to do that. So it's the 80-20 rule. Like there's got to be something else that you're balancing out with what is very intense, you know, hours driven, revenue driven, like all of that stuff. Like that's what allows a law firm to be successful. If you're not thinking about that as an associate, you're going to fail. Um, but you can do that in a way that 
that accounts for your own mental health and sanity by finding that other piece of, of what you want to focus on. Good final thoughts. Is well, that my on... final thought or any final thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I think that that could be a good one. If, if you have a final thought, I'll hear it. <laughs> no, this is, this has been great, man. I mean, it's, I think, you know, the one thing that I think we need to do more of in the South Asian legal community is lifting each other up, right? Like I saw what I thought was uh, a gap in the South Asian bar in DC on partners helping partners and in-house lawyers giving opportunities to South Asian lawyers at, at firms. And so I complained enough to my friends that were on the Saba board in DC that they finally were like, stop complaining, just run for the board. And so I did two years ago, and I'm probably a decade older than everybody else on the board. But I was like, you know what? I'll put my money where my mouth is. I'll serve on the board for a couple of years. And we launched a few months ago uh, a partner circle. And so it's, you know, bringing together what are, there, there are 80 South Asian partners in the DC. And it's a number that's way bigger than I thought, right? Like I, my little network of, you know, 10 or 15 people that were on my radar, I thought was still a significant number, but it's much larger than that. And so you think about the referral opportunities, the opportunities to, you know, potentially pitch together to clients. You add to that the possibility of having South Asian lawyers and leadership positions in-house willing to give uh, other South Asian lawyers those opportunities. That's the way we're going to like blow things up, right? And we, we can, we don't have to look very far to other, uh, other minority communities to see how they have used that type of connectivity to run, you know, run, run the game. And so, so I think we have so much promise, so much, you know, potential. Um, and I think, you know, what you're doing with Bonnie Cooler and sharing these stories and providing a platform to communicate and get together is just a, a really, really great initiative. Thanks, man. And I, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, my logic is it's just, uh, asymmetric payoff. Cause you know, like you say, it's just, uh, we've already as a community accomplished so much and just even just say, just thinking about the headlines that involve like South Asian lawyers in the past year, I mean, you've got, you know, people like take your pick of which gray wall you want to talk about, or, you know, Lena Khan, you know, just like, it, it, it's just, and this is just, get, this is what it looks like to just get started. You know, like you're saying, I mean, just for you to be the second turban wearing, uh, you know, Sikh, um, you know, that's, you know, just, that's just getting started. Like you said, this isn't two, isn't you know the cap, right? This is just getting started. So, uh, to me, it's just prudent, you know, like why wouldn't you want to, uh, invest in this community because there's just so much upside. Um, so, so I'm excited to see what comes, uh, in the coming years and, uh, to keep on building here. I am too, man. All right, man. Well, Hey, great catching up. Um, Thanks, Simon. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm glad we were able to do this, man.